So this is an exploration into the posture of prayer, internally and externally. I want to open with a question for you. I'm going to read a quote, but I want you to think about this. What does this description bring to mind? What does this description bring to your mind? A minority religious group provokes curiosity among their neighbors, not least because of their habits concerning ritual and prayer. Their women are conspicuously veiled. They gather for meetings whose mysterious conduct and message lead outsiders to anxiety. They stop even in their daily routines to pray, facing a certain direction, making prostrations, and using a set formula given by their founder as a mark of their faith. What does this bring to your mind? So, okay, so when I read this quote, you all thought the same thing I thought. This is Islam. And then the author (laughs) slapped me and said, no, this is a description of ancient Christian prayer. I thought, what? And as I've learned elsewhere, it was the Muslims who took from the Christians certain postures of prayer. And then we in the West, because we've seen Islam do it, have been really freaked out by it and assumed that these are Islamic methods of praying, when actually these were what Christians did from the beginning. And you can read this for yourself in the ancient writings that this was the Christian posture of prayer. Women veiled? They were veiled. You can actually see Paul talking about that in 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, What was the other weird one? Um, Facing a certain direction? Really? Yeah, so... Muslims faced Mecca, whichever direction that is. Christians faced east, always east, because that was where they believed Christ was coming back from the east. And it was a posture of expectation. Um, prostrations? Yeah. When you see Muslims doing the whole face to the ground thing over and over, Christians did that. They, the Muslims said, that's a good idea. We'll do that. Um, I've heard theories that we've lost this. It's now foreign to us because um, in the Protestant Reformation, we made the preaching of Scripture very long. I know, Calvary Chapel does that, and I'm not ashamed. We made the preaching of Scripture very long, so you gave people seats. Ancient Christians didn't sit down at church. They stood the whole service. And there were no pews. There were no seats. There was nothing to bang your head on when you made a prostration. Protest, like, I think the West lost it because of the Protestant Reformation, and we started sitting down, and we couldn't do prostrations because there are seats in front of us. And um, that's just become a cultural norm. Anyways, I was blown away by that. So we have a new world to explore, and that's the posture of prayer. Why is the posture of prayer important, and how do you do that? So um, the reason I also think that this is foreign to us is that we largely have internalized prayer into something that the inner person does. We don't think of prayer as something the outer person does. So this is one of the reasons why we get confused. But early Christians prayed with their body as well as with their mind. So I want to invite you to use your whole person and explore this. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, um, I don't actually have a text for you tonight. One of the very few times in a whole given year, I don't have a specific text for you. So I'll be mentioning lots of passages, but um, I'm going to read a couple verses from 1 Kings chapter 8. This is when Solomon is dedicating the temple to God. And we see something interesting about how he prays. I'm not going to read his prayer. It's very long. But in 1 Kings 8 verse 22, we see this. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. 
two postures. He's standing and he's spreading out his hands toward heaven. Then at the end of the prayer, in verse 54, we see, now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. So during this prayer, Solomon has had his hands outstretched standing. Then at some point he had fallen to his knees and at the end he got back up and then it said that he stood and then the next verse or yeah, the next verse, he, he then stands and blesses the people to finish the dedication service. Um, that's verse Kings 8. That's Solomon. Now, you might remember, just to bring us back now, that's your introduction. Um, our series on prayer is called Becoming All Fire because in the Egyptian wilderness, when there were a lot of monks out there praying, Abba Lot had progressed in prayer and needed some new direction. So he comes to Abba Joseph and says, Abba Joseph, what more must I do to learn how to pray? And Abba Joseph stands up, raises his hands. Now you see that, that posture, right? And begins to pray to God and all 10 of his fingers become flames of fire. Then he sits down and says, Abba Lot, if you will, you can become all fire. And brothers and sisters, if you will, you can become all fire because our communion with God in prayer will bring us to become like the burning bush, more alive as who we are because the fire of God is in us and upon us, becoming one, yet not absorbed or swallowed up or destroyed. The soul is coal, the Holy Spirit is fire, and, the, and prayer is where the two ignite. So we've looked at why we pray to commune with God. We've looked at when we pray. You have set times when you decide, I'm going to pray in the morning. I'm going to pray before I go to bed. I'm going to pray. You set your times. But then there's spontaneous times between those where we offer up thanks. When we're thankful for something, we pray for help. When we need help with something and so forth. Um, Then what we pray, that was last week. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Psalms. We pray the Scriptures. And you also pray whatever is on your heart. And um, tonight we are looking at how we pray. Our minds wander, even in prayer, unfortunately. My mind wanders all day. And when I'm in prayer, I'm keenly aware of how much my mind wants to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wander when I pray. (laughs) But I want you to know that that's not you're not alone. If your mind wanders and you pray, so does mine. And so did every Christian of every age. One of my favorite people to quote, St. John of Sinai, way back in the 6th century, was talking to his fellow monks about the struggle of a wandering mind and gave them some advice. Here's what he says. We'll come back to this later. He says that the start of prayer involves exiling all thoughts that come to us in a single, in single spurts. The instant they appear. Apparently they had things creep into their minds while they're praying too. Then the middle state invokes restricting our minds to what is being said and thought. Then the fulfillment is a raptured state with the Lord. Love that. A raptured state. Now, we might be waiting for Jesus' return, but you can be raptured every day. 
if we can get our minds, our hearts, and our bodies in the right posture before God. Raptured from this earthly sphere up into God's heavenly sphere. Prayer can take us there. Uh, But how do we stay focused? How do we get raptured? (laughs) By posture and by structure. If you pray with posture and you pray with structure, you will find yourself raptured in the presence of God. Now, so I don't have time to do both of those. So next week, I know it's the Super Bowl, but nonetheless, next week I will be talking about a structure of prayer. Um, What are the things we pray? What do you pray for? How do you order that? I'm really excited. I started started writing all that out and I was like, oh my goodness, we can't squish this in tonight. This has to be its own thing. So we'll see who wins on Super Bowl Sunday. I don't mean which team. I mean church or Super Bowl, which wins. (laughs) I will see, you know, I I will just assume your car broke down if you're not here. Prayer raptures us into God's presence when prayer is formed by a particular posture and structure. So I want to coach, I want to guide you guys in this. So um, let's look at it, how we pray, the posture. There are two postures, and this is where we'll go for the rest of the night. Two postures. There's an internal posture, and there's an external posture. We'll start with the internal. We'll work our way to the external. All right? So the internal posture of prayer. Saint Saint Theophan the Recluse, that 19th century Russian monk, he said that we are to stand with reverence before God. You can already see the physical posture there. Stand with the internal, with reverence before God, with the mind in the heart, and strive toward him with longing. That's how Saint Theophan the Recluse says to pray. Stand with reverence, with the mind in the heart, and strive toward God with longing. So our internal posture has two components. It has the mind, it has the heart. And, I don't remember who said this, but I had read it, um, when the mind and the heart are united in prayer, you have heaven on earth. And if you've ever had these moments when your mind stops thinking for a second, and it's not racing here or there, but you feel this, you feel this presence you're just, you're just resting in the heart. It is literally heaven on earth. How do you do that? How do you pray like that? How do you get there? Well, let's go back to St. Uh, John of Sinai's quote. He gave us two steps that, le- that end up in rapture. He says, first, the start of prayer involves exiling the thoughts that come to us in single spurts the instant they appear. The second step was the middle state involves restricting the mind. Make it, a, make it a hostage. Make it a hostage. Restricting the minds to what is being said and thought. The result, number three, the fulfillment is a raptured state with the Lord. So let's look at those two steps. Number one, preparation. Preparation is exiling all thoughts that come to us. So let's say you're going to your set time of prayer. You're coming into church. You've got a hundred things. Okay, I know a few people who have come straight from work. I know some people that are dealing with children right now. You come to church with so many things on your mind. You go to your prayer time with a world of things buzzing around up here. Do not just hastily rush into prayer. You're going to be half praying, half thinking the whole time. Preparation 
um, a region of, of uh, uh, Alexandria. He's the third century guy. I'm going to quote him in a second. But he said that this preparation before you pray is foundational to your prayer. What does he mean? What do I mean? What do we mean by preparation? We mean this. Rush not into prayer. You go to your prayer place. You get your Bible or what, what the components you have for prayer. Um, and don't rush, but allow the mind to settle. Maybe you follow your breathing a little bit because that really helps you just to stay in the moment. Shut, shut off the thoughts that are coming. As St. John said, exile them the second they appear. And just for a moment, start. Ch- you're going to be chucking things, right? Things hit you like, take that and take that. And, <laughs> and then, as best as you can, recall who it is you are before. It takes a couple moments, but it gets you in a better place. So this is what a region of Alexandria said. He will have put aside, the person who does this, will have put aside every testing and troubling thought and will recall as far as possible the greatness of the one whom he's approaching. I basically already said all that, so there you go. (laughs) But Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 echoes the same thing. Do not be rash with your mouth. And not, let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. There's a difference here. And we need to calm ourselves and re- recall who it is we're coming before. This is not my boyfriend or my chump. I mean, you see shirts like that all the time. Like, Jesus, my best friend. Like, well, yeah, maybe, but not, like, not exactly like your best friend. You're coming before the one in heaven and you're on earth. There's a, there's a difference here. And we prepare ourselves as we come in. Second, recollection. We recall ourselves whenever we stray. St. John had said we're restricting our minds to what is being said and thought. So um, I'm praying, and I'm praying that um, I would be filled with the Spirit. Next thing I know, I'm thinking about, is my gas tank filled with gas? I wonder when the prices of gas are going to come down. Five points just dropped 10 cents. Did you see that? We were like about to break the $5 mark, and then it went down a little bit. Whew, hallelujah. Um, And then suddenly, like, wait a minute. What was I just praying? Oh, yes, Lord, fill me. That literally happens at least once every time you pray. At least once. It's okay. Your job is to recollect yourself. When you wander, say, (coughs) come back. And what you get to do is rather than beat yourself up, I can't believe, Lord, that I can't concentrate on you for 10 minutes. Rather than doing that, recognize I am prone to wander. This is my nature. And you get to practice repentance every time you pray, multiple times when you pray. I get to bring my mind, which is what repentance literally means, is to bring the mind back to God. I get to bring the mind back to God over and over and over. And guess what? The more you're on top of this and every time you catch the mind straying and you bring it back to God, it becomes a habit that every time your mind starts to go toward worldly things, you're like, oh, bring it back to God. And during the day, you will find a better focus in the presence of God. Training the mind to recollect itself in prayer is a gift. Don't beat yourself up because you can't focus. I'm just a bad prayer. We're all bad prayers, really. None of us can pray like the Son of God, who is, by the way, right now praying for us, endlessly interceding for us. 
Yeah, so that's what we do. Now, you'll know you arrive to prayer when you can keep the mind. It, it will still wander, but when you can happily keep it in prayer. Because sometimes you want your mind to wander. You're like, I'm so bored with this. And then it's like, oh, I'll just think about good things as your mind wanders. Like, God's leading my mind right now. And then you're like, oh, good, my prayer time's up. And then you're done. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a start. It's a start. But St. Evagrius, do you guys remember Macarius? St. Evagrius was his disciple. St. Evagrius said that if when praying, no other joy can attract you, then you have truly found prayer. You know you're in prayer when you don't want anything else to happen right now. What a place to be. And we can train our minds to stay there. That is the internal posture of the mind. Now the heart. Um, When St. Theophan said that prayer is the mind being in the heart, what exactly does that mean? So yes, it means on one hand, We're focusing the mind on what we are praying. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit fills me. I'm focusing my mind on that. I'm not going to let it wander from there. And if it does, I'm going to bring it back. Holy Spirit, fill me. But second, it means that when your mind is focusing on what you pray, the heart is feeling the meaning of what you pray. So as I'm praying, Holy Spirit, fill me, my heart is searching for That yearning of, I am empty and I need you. And that when you say, come and cleanse me from every sin, you're feeling the spirit cleansing you from sin. It's becoming a reality to you. That when the mind can focus on what's being said and the heart can feel the meaning of what's being said, that's when you're praying with reverence, with the heart in the mind and yearning and reaching out for God. That's what St. Theophan is talking about. So how... Or what is it like to feel the meaning of what we are praying? Um, it means like I'm focusing my attention. Let's say I'm in a psalm and it says, um, To you I flee for refuge from my foes. Direct me to do your will for you, O oh my God. Let your good spirit guide me on ground that is level. Um, each of these lines, yes, my mind's focusing on the words. But my heart is feeling its meaning. His good spirit guiding me on ground that is level. Oh, when the spirit leads me, it's, it's easy. It's smooth paths. I'm not going to stumble. I'm not going to go the wrong way. I'm not going to be led into a pit. Um, I'm, I'm feeling the meaning of those words. I'm feeling thankfulness. I'm feeling yearning. Lord, I, I desperately need your spirit to lead me, or I'm going to end up putting my foot in a bear trap, which I've spiritually done way too many times or your foot in your mouth, which is, you know, what we do all the time. Um, so here's, here, here's how Thomas Watson, the Puritan from the 17th century, here's how he put it. He said that that prayer is most likely to pierce heaven, which first pierces one's own heart. The prayer that pierces heaven is the prayer that pierces your heart. Now, sometimes we think, oh my goodness, I can't pray the Lord's Prayer every day. We talked about that last week, right? I can't pray the Lord's Prayer every day. I, I can't pray that two times a day. Are you kidding me? It'll get so stale. It'll get so bland. I tell you, if you pray with the mind in the heart, if you focus on the meaning of the words and feel their meaning in the heart, the Lord's Prayer gets better every time you pray it. I'm telling you from experience, not from theory. 
that when I pray, hallowed be your name, and when that prayer pierces my heart, I've pierced heaven. That's what Thomas Watson says. Back to St. Theophan. You remember, he's the guy that prayed on a rock for a thousand days, so he knows a thing or two. He said the same thing. Prayer itself is the piercing of our hearts by pious feelings toward God. One after another. Feelings of, now he gives us this great list of examples, which is very helpful. Feelings of humility, submission. When you confess your sins, do you feel humility? Or do you just feel like it's a duty? Humility, submission, gratitude, doxology, which is praise, forgiveness, heartfelt prostration, brokenness, conformity to the will of God, and then he just puts etc. Come on, dude, keep going. That was helpful. Then he says, all of our effort should be directed so that during our prayers, these feelings and feelings like them should fill our souls so that the heart would not be empty when the lips are praying or when the ears hear and the body bows in prostrations, but that there would be some qualitative feeling, some striving towards God. When these feelings are present, our praying is prayer. And when they are absent, it is not yet prayer. Wow. Just reading that to you, it just makes me go, man, I want to experience what St. Theophan experiences when he prays. I feel like I get glimpses of this, but I'm learning to, to pray more with the right inward posture. The mind focusing on the, on the words and the heart feeling the meaning of them. Um, but notice how he said, if you're not feeling all this in prayer, then your prayer is not yet real prayer. I want to give you an encouragement because you will not always have feelings in your prayer. Sometimes you're not going to feel the flame of fire in your prayer. You're going to feel very cold. You're going to feel like you are just praying to the wall three feet in front of you. Or in my prayer room, the ceiling is about three inches above me. The prayer is going nowhere. <laughs> Take heart. Because even the saints experience the same thing. And here's what Evagrius said. Sometimes as soon as you start to pray, you pray well. And it's amazing. Other times, in spite of your great exertion, you do not reach your goal. It's dreadful. <laughs> This is to make, this is what he's saying, God's designing this in your life. This is to make you exert yourself still more so that having gained the fight of prayer, you keep it safe. If you are not striving and yearning for something, then you're not going to treasure it. God will do this to us sometimes in our prayers so that we yearn for what heartfelt prayer feels like again. It's teaching us to yearn. So take heart if you feel cold in your prayer. Keep going and strive harder, he says. And then you will merit, or you will, you will, you will feel. I shouldn't say merit. We're not entering anything from God. But you will, you, will, uh, you will attain and treasure true prayer. Okay, so now let's, that's the internal posture. It's the mind, it's the heart, and when these are working together. But they don't work together when you allow the mind to think about what you're doing right after you pray. 
or when you feel pressed and you're allowing the mind to keep thinking, oh, hurry up. (laughs) I got a list of people to pray for and I'm only halfway through. That's not helpful. Keeping the mind focused and the heart feeling. But now the external posture of prayer. And this is, to me, the first one was not too surprising. It's like, okay, never heard anyone talk about that before, but that makes sense. There's an inward attitude before God that we must maintain. But the external posture, this is where I'm walking on water with you. Hope we don't sink. <laughs> prayer is, in my conviction, and this, this is something I've been doing for the last two years. So I'm not, a, I'm not, I mean, it's not all my life. I'm not exactly a newbie either. I've been praying physically for the last two years. And I've become convinced, and a lot of the ancient fathers' writings have supported that prayer is not just spiritual, it is also physical. That prayer, yes, is involving the mind and the heart, but it's also involving the body. Why? Why the body? Because Christ redeemed your body, not just your soul. He redeemed your body. We will be resurrected in bodies. Christ came as a body. The body is redeemed as well as the soul, which means my body needs to pray as well as my soul. I'm not just a brain lugging a body around. That's Platonism. That's what Plato was thinking. We're going to escape these bodies one day. Christ, like, no, we're not. We're going to have them healed. I'm not just a brain lugging a body around. The incarnation of God becoming man prohibits us from reducing ourselves to a mere intellect. We've bought into the phrase, I think, therefore I am. No, brothers and sisters, the Christian is not just I am because we think. We are also a body and it's not a bad thing. Christ redeemed our bodies. Our bodies must also pray. Second reason for the body is that our desires are directed by our bodies. It took me a while to be convinced of this, but I'm convinced of it. And what hit me was the analogy of food. I cannot think my way into healthy eating. You know, I know, we all know what it means to eat healthy. It's not a mystery that you have to crack. We know what it is. Thinking about it, knowing what it means to eat healthy, has not changed anyone's appetite. It's what you actually put in your body. It's what you actually eat. It's the physical practice of what you shop for, create, cut, put a fork in, put in your mouth. It's what you physically do, which is telling your appetite what to desire. If you want to eat healthy, make yourself eat vegetables for a whole week. Well, you got maybe two weeks and you will start to desire something different. You may never like Brussels sprouts, but that's your loss. Um, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, you may never get there, but um, yes. But it's by doing things that our desires change. We're not just brains that are containers for beliefs. We're bodies which are vehicles for behavior as well. And when we pray with our bodies, the prayer grabs our senses. Because I'm not just thinking prayer anymore. I'm doing with my body. And so the prayer grabs my senses and it gets under my skin and even into my bones. 
which, strangely enough, the Psalms talk about. Psalm 6, my bones ache. Psalm 51, the bones which you have crushed, may they rejoice. I believe Psalm 32 even mentions it, about saying my bones were sapped of their strength. I might just say my strength is sapped. I'm, that one's off the top of my head. Um, but because praying in the Psalms involved the body, the prayers entered into the bones. They were felt, and it was physical. James K.A. Smith says that the way to the heart is through the body. The way to the heart is through the body. (laughs) The way to the heart is through the body. Last, why the body? Because the body is a language. I think this is the most important. The body is a language. I don't care. That's what this posture says. The student slouching Patrick. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, Patrick's not even here. <laughs> he is. I know. I bet he's, so I can talk about him now. He's not in the room. Just kidding. Patrick doesn't do this. But other students slouch. Head down, moping. I don't care about this class. I don't care what you're teaching me. <laughs> posture. It means something. But sitting upright. Standing upright means Attention. Um, I remember in baseball, posture was everything to our coaches. Now, baseball, you can be that guy on the field that gets like one ball hit to you all game, right? That's the right fielder. Um, It could be so easy to be back on your heels, rocking around, just slouching, knees locked, looking around. Coaches always have to remind players, on your toes, knees bent, leaning forward, get ready. And you'll see pros, literally, they move forward with the pitch to have their body in momentum. For when something happens, you have split seconds to react, but now your posture is ready to. Posture is a language. It speaks of readiness or speaks of laziness. And so by putting the body into postures, we are also bringing the mind and the heart with it. Sometimes you don't feel repentant. You're like, yeah, I sinned, big deal. But if you bend your face to the earth and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, you will start to feel a little bit of remorse. If the heart is cold or hard, put the body into action. You can always control that. You can't always control the thoughts of the heart. Put the bo- It's a language. If you can't say it here, in here, say it out here. And I believe wholeheartedly that body is, a, we know body is a language. I would say over 50% of our communication is physical, not verbal. We communicate a lot with our posture. And I believe that God sees our posture and he honors our posture. Not just what the heart is feeling or the mind is thinking. Okay, so there are some reasons for the body. Um, what do we do with the body? There are five, you could probably stretch this into more depending on nuance you get, but I'm going to simplify it to five Physical postures of prayer in the Bible. The first is standing. You saw Solomon do that. We read that. He stood. Standing is a posture. What is uh, Elijah? Um, God told him, remember when Elijah heard his still small voice at Mount Sinai? When Elijah got there, God told him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. What does standing mean? It means readiness. But it also means that you're honoring the presence of the one you're before. So it's readiness and presence and attention. Now, when somebody important enters the room, to remain seated is to treat them as an equal. To stand 
is to honor the one who came in. We're not always good at that because we don't always think about how our body is used. But that's what it would mean. So standing before God is one of our postures. Jesus said in Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, and Abraham, when he interceded for Lot, stood before the Lord. Second, raised hands. You see me do this all the time. I read that the early, when I had read two years, four years ago, maybe, when I had read that early Christians were actually symbolized in artwork like this, this was how, in artwork, an icon of a Christian was this. That's how people looking at art knew it was a Christian. They often depicted a woman without upraised arms because this is what Christians did when they prayed. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I see people do that when they're singing and they're getting all emotional, but I don't see this in prayer. But this was the ancient Christian posture. Uh, Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, You see this all over the Psalms. Psalm 63 says, in your name I will lift up my hands. Psalm 141, let the lifting of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you. Raised hands opens our hearts to God. That's what it's doing. We're opening ourselves to him, but we're also showing longing for the one we're opening ourselves to. You're reaching. That's what Psalm's saying. I'm reaching out for you. It's openness. God, your presence, I'm open to, and I'm yearning for you. This is what I want. You can also add Moses. When the Israelites were at battle, they won because of his hands upraised. Number three, this uplifted eyes uplifted eyes i i I don't often um actually have my eyes open i might lift my face but sometimes it's just hard to stare at that roof which is three inches above me (laughs) um but i perceive when you're outside this could be good the point of uplifted eyes is that you're remembering that this realm is not all there is that we will be lifted up to the one in heaven um, that's, that's where our destination is, is with God. So uplifted eyes do that. Here's a couple of examples of it in the Bible. Psalms 123. To you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And then Jesus, interestingly, three times in the Gospels, lifts up his eyes in prayer. Uh, Matthew, or Mark 6. It says, taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. So he received them. He said, Father, we bless you for this, and we pray that you would multiply this for these masks. That's how he did it. He looked up. I guess I'm assuming his hands are raised. (laughs) Um, I added that part, I guess. But Mark chapter 7, and looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. So upon healing the, the deaf man's ears, Jesus looked up into heaven and sighed. That was his prayer. Oh, man. And then he heals him. Uh, John chapter 17. John is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. The whole chapter is his prayer for us. And this is how it starts. John 17 verse 1. Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed. The whole prayer. Father, let them be one as you and I are one. That's how he's praying. Um, Number four. Kneeling. Do I have to show you this one? Just on your knees. We do that on, I invite you guys, I don't know how many, I never look, so I don't know how many of you guys kneel at confession. Um, you guys know I kneel during confession. A kneeling shows humility. 
It shows reverence. It also shows reliance and dependence. Anytime you want to express those things, kneel. Here's some examples. Um, first, I'm going to start with a region. He, by the way, I'm quoting region in this sermon a few times because he wrote a whole treatise on prayer. One of the earliest ancient documents. Uh, the Christians wrote a lot about prayer, more than even evangelism early in the days. A region uh, wrote one good one. And he said, he described kneeling as essential when one intends to confess one's own sins against God and to beseech healing for them and remission. Psalm 95 calls for this. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Examples in the Bible. Solomon, we just saw that he kneeled as he raised his hands in prayer. Um, Daniel, Daniel 6, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Peter, when he prayed to raise Dorcas from the dead, Acts says this, Peter knelt down and prayed. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Jesus, in Luke 22, the night he's about to be betrayed and and tried for crucifixion, in the Garden of Gethsemane it says that, And when he withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed. So when he said, Father, not as I will, but as you will, he was on his knees. That was reliance upon God. And number five, I saved the most important for last and the most absurd (laughs) for last, is a cartwheel. Just kidding, just kidding. It's prostration, prostration. Now, see, it's so foreign to us that when I first heard the word prostration, the pastor was struggling between the word prostration and prostate. We are prost, we are prostate before God. No, I mean, we're prostrate before God. And it's like, wait, which is which? I'm not sure what's the cancer and what's the... <laughs> well, I guess it's not cancer, it's part of your body, but yeah. Um, prostration is the most extreme posture of submission and humility. Because you cannot do more than prostrate. You are as low to the ground as you can go. And if you could... Your heart is saying, I would go beneath the floor because you are so mighty, so majestic, Lord. That's what prostration is. It is saying all of this to our God just by moving the body. The desert fathers were full of prostrations. You look at some of the prayers they did, and they have prostrations inserted. This is where you prostrate yourself. Um, there are guys that, pray, that prostrated, prostrated <laughs> there I go, prostrated, I, I, I planted the seed and I'm ruined. Um, they prostrated themselves. Well, one, I heard of one guy, he got old. So he said, I had to reduce my prostrations to 300 a day. <laughs> that, was, that was for an old man. <laughs> um, prostrations, as you know, have been foreign to us. I think our fear of Islam and also the way we design our churches. We don't have room. How are you guys going to prostrate yourselves? One or two of you can sneak into the aisles or go in the back, but you don't get a chance, right? Um, but in your own prayer room, you can. Um, but also, I think to a degree, because it's hard. A prostration is hard for us. You, act, you have to be somewhat fit to do multiple prostrations. Uh, but of course, do what you can. Um, one person, I think it was Theophan, said, do prostrations to the point, to right before the point where you're too weak to continue your prayers. 
It's like you don't want to prostrate, 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 and then you're out of breath and you can hardly pray. That's not the goal. The goal, though, is to bring, to do it until you bring yourself to a place of humility. And actually, when you are preparing yourself to pray, a prostration is not a bad way. You're submitting the mind and the heart to this activity, and you're humbling yourself before God. Do three. Do 300. Write your own, your own way. Um, but it will get you ready for prayer. That's one suggestion. Is this in the Bible? <laughs> is it in the Bible? Holy cow. This is something that has been overlooked grossly. Um, it's everywhere. Starting with Abraham. Abraham prostrated himself before God. Um, people prostrate themselves before Jesus all the time. It's common in the Gospels. And we see it in Revelation. It concludes with prostrations as well. Um, here's where it is. In the Old Testament, the word shakah is used 175 times. And you know what it means? To bow down, to prostrate oneself. What is shakah translated as? Worship. When you see the Bible say worship, you can guarantee almost every time that it's the word prostration in the Bible. So come, let us worship and bow down before God, our King. What the Bible's literally saying is, come, let us prostrate ourselves before God, our King. When you prostrate yourself, you are worshiping. New Testament, 60 times. The word is proskuneo, always, again, translated worship. When it says that the wise man came and worshiped Jesus, the word is proskuneo. They fell with their faces to the ground before Jesus. Here's some other examples. Um, The leper in Matthew 8 Right after Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down and says, a leper came and proskuneoed himself before Jesus. If you can, you will make me clean. Um, the ruler, the next chapter in Matthew, the ruler of the synagogue whose daughter was dying, came and prostrated himself before Jesus. Please heal my daughter. This is ultimate humility and pleading with God is what you see these characters doing. They have no better way of asking for help than prostrating themselves. Um, Another benefit of prostrations is that you are getting the gospel in your body. Think about this. You are enacting the gospel in miniature. You're standing before God as we were created, standing before him originally in the creation. But then we fell into sin. And so you fall And there, if you want to literally do this like this, you say, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then you stand back up because it's his mercy that raises us. Every time you do that, created in the image of God, fallen into sin, but redeemed back before God through Christ's mercy. You get to enact that every time you prostrate yourself. Um, If you've never seen a prostration, I will demonstrate to you Afterward, there'll be a spectacle. I'm just kidding. This is what it looks. It's really simple. You um, you go hands, knees, face like this. That's a simple prostration. <laughs> now you can do those multiple times. Really quickly, touch the forehead to the floor and get back up. Um, or you get down and stay down. Maybe you're interceding. You're pleading, and you stay down. Um, you, you do as, the, as you feel necessary. This is your body and your expression before God. But that's a prostration. I would encourage you guys to try it um, if you can. Of course, sometimes we're just not able, and God knows that. Okay, so um, 
Some, one last thing about our posture here is that sometimes, sometimes you will do a lot of these at once. You will stand with your hands raised and look up to heaven. Or you will kneel with your hands raised and looking up. Or hands raised and then prostrate from your knees and then back up to your knees and then your hands... You, there's a combo of things, these things that can happen. And um, a region of Alexandria, last time, um, he said this in his, his treatise on prayer. He said, of all the postures... And by the way, he mentioned all of those postures in his... Um, he said, of all postures... Standing with hands extended and eyes upraised. So exactly what I mean. Standing, hands upraised, and hands up and eyes raised. He said, This is the preferred posture. In that one who wears this posture in the body is displaying the image of the characteristics which are becoming of the soul in prayer. What does that mean? He says, This is what the soul is doing in prayer. You're putting the soul into the body because the soul is being raptured into God's presence in prayer. And so the body is anticipating its communion and arrival with God. I am coming to you, Father. That's what a region is saying in my interpretation. So, conclusion. One saint from way back, St. Mark the ascetic, 5th century Egyptian monk, said... Prayer comprises the complete fulfillment of the commandments, for there is nothing higher than love for God. Prayer completes commandments because there's nothing higher than love for God. What does he mean? Well, when I pray with an inner posture and an external posture, I am praying with mind, heart, and body. I'm praying with my whole person, which means I am doing what God said in Deuteronomy 6. And what Jesus says, quotes a couple times in, this, in the Gospels, you shall love the Lord your God with your mind. No, it's a list. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We put all of ourselves into loving God. That's why Mark the ascetic says that prayer is the fulfillment of the commandment, for it is love. It's nothing higher than love for God. So brothers and sisters, if you will, you can become all fire. Let us continue to grow in prayer. May Christ be made manifest in us so that he can be made manifest to the world. Lord, direct my will. Teach me to pray. And pray you yourself in me. Amen.